0: And I walked out of the, you know, that that first room, and I was going to sit down with my new team, and I was going to be, you know, the young buck on the team. And I looked at them, and I was 23, 22, whatever it was. And I said, I looked at them, I said, but I'm not going to do this. And he was like, What? He said, Why not? He said, I can't recall anyone that went through this battle and quits.
1: Welcome to. How to buy giant apartment buildings. The number one show about growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. Now, here's your host, Mark Allen Kenny. Hey, everybody. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings. I'm Mark Allen Kenny. Our guest today is John Cohen. How are you doing today, John?
0: Uh, I'm doing good, man. I got uh, no complaints. I appreciate uh, you having me on here. Thank
1: you, yeah, I appreciate you being on here. So John started investing in real estate in 2010. From then he went on to start Toro Real Estate Partners in 2015. Over the years, John has been involved in over three hundred and fifty million in various real estate transactions. So, John, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Could you tell the listeners just a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate?
0: Yes, yeah, so I always had. Uh, I think, like a lot of people, just you know, real estate was a thing, right? Everyone, everyone wants to do something involved with real estate. But I actually started as in, in finance. So I worked as a stockbroker. I ended up doing that for about three and a half years, give or take. And my last year, I moved over to Morgan Stanley. Uh, I went through a long, a year-long interview and ended up getting hired and quitting my job the same day that I actually got the job because <laughs> it was when Facebook IPO'd and I just I just saw people, looks like their world shattered because Morgan Stanley was the underwriter. So it, it did not perform well the day it IPO'd, but that was my background. And then from there, I wanted to go right into real estate investing and taking the same skill set, the cold calling and trying to raise money to buy real estate. But at that point in time, it was not as flexible as today with all different blue sky laws and accreditation, and it wasn't as easy. So I ended up getting my license, started doing residential real estate rentals and sales. Then I transitioned over to the commercial world doing multifamily investment sales. But while I was a stockbroker and through those early parts of being an agent, that's when I explored and started dabbling in real estate, you know, buying tax deeds, doing a couple of fix and flips. So it was always in the background, but it wasn't until the Marcus chap days when I finally got in that platform and learned the business that I decided to leave that quit and hundred percent focus went on to real estate investing after that. So it was stockbroker, real estate, failed investor, right into the agent world. And then uh doing deals on the side and that parlayed me into the multifamily world really thanks to Marcus and Milichap and the platform it gave me. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome.
1: So let's talk about the day that you quit during the Facebook IPO. So you spent a year in this interview process getting vetted, going through, probably jumping through tons of hoops to get that position. And the day you got hired, you quit. Did you have a plan? Did you know what you were going to do or it was just like I cannot be in this room with these people?
0: Yeah, so the first two and a half years, two years was great, right? I mean, I was working as a regular stockbroker, you're making money, you're raising money, it was really fun. But it became monotonous. It was just the same thing day in, day out, making 500, 600, 800 calls sometimes a day, just hearing the word no 95% of the time, which wasn't a problem. But I recall when I was sitting in my office one day, and someone did something they weren't supposed to do. And I just oversaw Basically, people weren't really frowning upon it. And I said, I, I really don't want to be in this environment anymore. So I actually spoke to my uncle who worked at UBS, and he said, if you're going to continue to do this, you got to get out of those rooms because they're they are what they are. And when when I was there, you know, you would build a business in six months, and then it would just completely come shattering down because you'd buy the wrong stock. So I said, okay, I got to make a change. So you know, he helped me. He introduced me to his friend at Morgan Stanley who was in charge of the training program and, uh, made the introduction. I sat down with him and he said, listen, you are 10 years younger than anyone that I would ever even think of talking to. Cause I was 22 at the time or 23, you know, 20, right out of, you know, really a couple of years out of college, but he said, you know what you're coming recommended interview. So I interviewed with this team, I interviewed with this team and, and I made my way around the rooms. Everyone asked me a million questions. Where'd you go to school? You know, I'm not the Harvard Yale guy, right? Um, you know, I could barely put sentences together sometimes, you know, I, I, I played baseball through college. So, wasn't right for this guy. Wasn't right for Then I found a team that was, it was three people. Uh, one of their partners was in their eighties. Him and his wife worked at the firm. And then there was two younger guys. They were in their fifties. And they basically said, you know what? This, you know, the 80 year old couple, they're transitioning out. They want to be done with this. I think you're, you know, you're, you can hustle, right? We'll, we'll, we'll give you a shot. So nine months of interviews up, down, left, right, sideways. I finally got introduced to the training program. And when I sat down there, it was you need a certain amount of money raised, you got to do this, you got to do this. you got this. I said, ah, that that's no problem, right? Like tasks, I can do it. And then Facebook IPO, and I walked out of the, you know that that first room and I was going to sit down with my new team, and I was gonna be you know the young buck on the team. And I saw the two year olds like look across the desk at each other when they Facebook IPO, and it was just like, I just saw the world end. So I looked at them and I was twenty three, twenty two whatever it was, and I said I looked at them, I said, I'm going to work the next 60 years to have that reaction. I said, that's not going to happen. So I actually walked into my, the original guy. And I said, Jeff, I really apologize. I know I probably wasted countless hours of time, but I'm not going to do this. And he was like, what? He said, why not? He said, I can't recall anyone that went through this battle and quits. I was like, well, it's, you know, you can call quitting and I'll say, yes, I quit. But at the end of the day, I just don't have a passion for this and I don't want to do it. And he literally said, you know, this his exact words to me were, you know, this one hurts because you're going to be successful. And I know whether you're here or whether you're somewhere else, you're going to be super successful. So I can't, I'm pissed because we went through a lot of time. But at the end of the day, I can't be mad because you're, you're, you know, if you come in here and you don't love it, it's not going to work. So I left and I actually ran into him a year later and he said, don't make it too painful. What are you doing? And I told him. He said, "And you're making a lot of money, right?" I said, "Well, if that's that's relative, but I am investing real estate, and and yes." And he said, "Yeah, I, I knew that. I knew that it would work for you. So I'm I'm happy. I'm pissed you didn't do it for me, but at the end of the day, I'm happy." I just, but at the end of the day, I just you know, I saw an 80 year old couple, and it looked like their world crashed, and I was like, "Yeah, you worked 60 years to see that."
1: Right, right. I love that. That's very wise, just knowing that that's not where you want to be in your 80s. And I think there's that expression that sometimes you're climbing a ladder and then don't realize that until you get closer to the top that it's leaning against the wrong tree. So even after nine months or 12 months of that work, you were brave enough to step away from that and do your own thing. So that's awesome. So I'm curious, like after that decision was made, you you tried to get into uh, multifamily and raise money on your own. You said, you know, it was a little bit more difficult back then. So for, I'm assuming cash flow reasons and just to get something going, you kind of gravitated more towards the agent side. What markets did you get started in and what kind of assets were you uh, buying and selling as an
0: agent? Yeah. So when I first, when I was still a stockbroker, I was actually reading a ton of books on real estate and just... You know, I was dialing the phone, and I had something up on my computer screen. and I was just reading it, so I ended up buying a ton of tax deeds. Just you know, either remotely from my desk, and or I would go sit at the auctions. Uh, you know, I'd take a day off from work, I'd go sit at an auction. I started buying stuff. It was a ninety-five percent of it was in Pennsylvania. We had a small single-family house there that we bought for my brother when he went to school, and we rented it out to him and his friends. And then when he left, we continued. He played rugby, so we continued renting it out to the rugby team. They destroyed it one time and then we just rented it to a family. But uh, so we were just buying, we myself was just buying really tax deed properties, either from auction, online, over the counter. And I did that while I was a broker with my own money. And I realized like I can scale this thing, right? I have a ton of clients that invest in the stock market. Let me call them. So I I tell my dad what I want to do. My dad's a lawyer and an accountant. And he said, listen, it's a great idea, but. You're gonna to have to register in each state. It's gonna cost you some money. You're gonna to have to file private placements, and at that point in time, it wasn't you know, crowdfunding really wasn't a thing, and and real estate was still sort of a good old boys club, or it was just really friends and family. It really wasn't this outspoken. It just wasn't happening as out out there. So at the end of the day, I just bought some stuff on my my own. And then I remember when I quit my job and when I quit Morgan Stanley and I was, I, was, I drove to my house, I'm, my parents' house and I'm sitting in the backyard. I have no shirt on and a bathing suit and I'm, we don't even have a pool, but I'm sitting on a lounge chair and I'm like, this is great. I'm a real estate investor, right? And then you quickly realize that you don't make that much money right away. So I basically said, okay, I got to I gotta pay the bills. Let me just go get my real estate license. Because with that, at least I'd have a tool you know check the mls you know i can cold call you know for sale by owners at least i'd be able to use something to either get a listing or find a deal or something so i ended up getting my license and uh, i was working rentals and sales in manhattan so i was working basically the entire city uh doing a mixture of sales and rentals my first year i was number like three in the company i did a ton of transactions and then realized quickly that this is a hustle you know, you're going from the Upper East Side to the Upper West Side, down to Tribeca, down to, you know, financial district. So you're spending so much time going up and down trains, Ubers, cars, you're like, there's really not many efficiencies here, right? Like, how do you make this really efficient? But I always had that vision for commercial real estate. So I ended up going down that path and and moving over to the multifamily side. And uh, my boss at the time at Marcus and Milicef actually convinced me to do multifamily, I wanted to do industrial warehouse, uh, like condo conversions and major projects in Brooklyn. but uh, my boss actually convinced me to do multifamilies in you know Brooklyn and Queens and it ended up being you know I thought it was like 200 400 unit buildings. It was actually like six to eight to ten unit apartment complexes in uh, you know Bushwick, Ridgewood, and Bedstuy, And uh, I just fell in love with the multifamily component and realizing that I could have a deal, have some cash flow and I'm not as good as my last transaction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. So I was looking from your website and I'm not sure how up to date this is, but it seemed like you guys were over 3,900 units, over 23 properties. Mm -hmm. So how did you get there? Cause I mean, if you're buying, you know, three or four units in Brooklyn and Queens, that's, that's a lot of properties over time. So how did your strategy focus? And then did your markets change as well?
0: Yeah. So when I was, uh, you know, when I was as an agent, I just started talking to my clients and they were telling me what they were doing New York is not the most rent-friendly state, so I educated myself. Uh, you know, I read a ton of books, uh, networked with a ton of people, and ended up joining a group of of probably about thirty people, forty people at the time. It was a very close mutual friend of mine, an uncle of mine, introduced me to a friend who's he used to be a mentor and a coach. He is no longer, uh, and I met him, and I just said, "Okay, this is everything that I wanted." It's taking the raising money component incorporating it into real estate, which I believed in. So I said, you know, it's so much easier for me to go raise money from people and find deals. He was buying stuff out of state. He was a local to where I am. He's about, he was about 30 minutes away from me. So I said, okay, if he can do it, you know, if someone can do something, you can do it. It's just, that's just fact, right? You just got to be able to believe it and see it. So at the end of the day, I said, okay, he really bridged the gap for me. So I started, look, he was buying some stuff in Cincinnati. So I said, okay, well, I don't want to buy where he's buying. What else is around there? So you know, you find Columbus and Dayton. And long story short, uh, I ended up my first property that I purchased on the multifamily side was a 48-unit building in Columbus, Ohio. And to this date, we still own in Columbus. And then you take what you've learned, you know, demographic research, supply and demand, population growth, and you try and find markets that fit that right where there's strong population growth, where there's good landlord tenant laws, and you follow that stuff around the country. And inevitably you start finding some sizable deals in some different markets. And, you know, currently right now, you know, we've sold some properties, but we've done about 28 transactions. And we still own about 13, 13 or 14 properties, mostly folks in the Southeast and the Midwest.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I love that approach. I I also live in New York and and invest in the Midwest. So the numbers just make a lot more sense there. So back to the mentor that you mentioned, and I found it interesting that you said, you know, you were were watching him do this sort of thing. And once you see it, you can believe it, which helps you get to that next level. How much of that mentorship was that mindset component as compared to the actual tactical side of going out, making offers, you know, getting accepted deals, uh, getting deals done?
0: Yeah, so my mindset's always been pretty good, right? I'm not, you know. I, I think if someone asked me the other day, you know, something about something. The question I do is like spiritual, and I said, well, I don't know. I, I just, I, you know, I'm not necessarily like reading those type of books. I do, but at the end of the day, I'm not. My mindset is super strong, right? So that mentor, the mindset, it really it was more tactical. You know, what websites to go to to find you know, the Census Bureau to find job growth, defined population growth. It was stuff like that, systems for, you know, hiring a property manager, questions to ask a property manager. It was that mixed with how I looked at it. You know, that group, yes, I did write a check for that group. Mom, my parents actually helped me out with that check and I paid them back. The group to me, I looked at it as okay, if there's 30 people, 60 people, and then it ended up getting to about a hundred people, if there's a hundred people in here that all wanna do the same thing. We can all collaborate together. You know, There's some money in that group that I'm sure would invest in a deal because you're all coming from the same advisor more or less. So if I find a deal and I follow the steps, well then people, it's already vetted. So I looked at that as more or less a really a, more, a paid for networking group with like-minded people. So if I was struggling on something or if I found a really good deal and it was a little bit bigger than I'd like, at least I knew I had a network of people. So it was more tactical and strategic than it was mindset. Can you do it? It was really putting systems in place to check off a lot of those boxes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then speaking to that system, how were you able to, I mean, so you started with a 48 unit project. Now you're pushing 4,000 units or somewhere around there. Did you Asset managed yourself in the beginning? Did you partner with people who had some sort of experience? How did you have the confidence and knowledge to just properly run these assets?
0: Yes. So I partnered with people. And when I say partnered, you know, I, you know, maybe it was a balance sheet partner because I couldn't, you know, the first deal I did, I actually, my dad signed on the loan. It was 100% recourse with one of my partners today that we partner on almost every opportunity. And at the end of the day, what you don't know what you don't know. So i did a lot of the stuff myself and i went through the motions myself you know we use third-party management on all of our sites and the real mission is you know make sure you're managing the manager and you're asset managing the opportunity let the manager do the day-to-day i'm not dealing with tenants on a day-to-day basis i'm just overseeing what they do we fired a lot of management companies you know we've you we've hired them they've done really well and then they stopped or they didn't do well out of the box we got rid of them so at the end of the day i didn't partner, like, oh, I'll raise the money, you manage the deal. I did everything in the business A to Z. I almost still do that today. You know, I have a partner and we have some teams and we have different stuff, but I'm more or less overseeing almost every part of the business. But yeah, it was just trial by fire, right? You know, you learn by doing. Luckily enough, the market's been really strong and we've bought some really good deals that even if we messed them up, we bought them really well. Right. And our, you know, we did hundred percent value add. So, you know, we were buying on what was there, not what it could be. So any outperformance you had and anything that you turned it into made it that much more profitable and that much better to the bottom line. So at the end of the day, I did it all. I personally believe, you know, a big thing for me is, if you hire someone or partner with someone and you don't know what you're doing, or you haven't at least gone through it, it could be on a single family or a duplex. If you've never done the work, you're not going to know if it's being done right or wrong. So I, I'm a big believer in doing it yourself. Now, I've never dealt with a tenant or done an eviction. But there's a ton of articles on you know how to do an eviction in whatever state, whatever county, whatever area. So if someone's telling you something that's not true, you can find out. But if you don't go through the motions, if you don't go through a loan application, if you don't try and find deals, and then you hire someone to find your deals, you're not going to know if they're doing a good job or a bad job. So I believe in you have to do everything yourself for a period of time. Then you want to find the good team players that can take something off your table, that do it well, and then you can oversee that you know, with KPIs and weekly check-ins and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I did it all. I mean, and I'm super happy that I did because I have a much better knowledge base today than I did when I started.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Has your strategy changed at all since you got started? As far as you know, the the value add stuff, and then also I know that you mentioned Ohio a lot. Are you still in those markets, or have you branched out at this point?
0: Yeah, so our strategy has changed significantly. I mean, we're still value add. You know, we've been very opportunistic. You know, buying 100% vacant properties, 50% occupied properties. I mean, that's the bread and butter, what I love. But at the end of the day, those deals are harder to find, and the market sort of shifted, right? We're in a really awkward place, not even 2020 and COVID world, not even 2021 and who knows what's going to happen. But prior to that, you know, we always felt like it was relatively frothy, right? Cap rates have come down significantly. Debt is almost free for lack of a better way of putting it. So at the end of the day, our strategy has shifted. It hasn't changed completely, but we are still focused in the areas and markets that we know well. So that is, you know, Columbus, Ohio, anywhere in and around the area. Jacksonville, Florida, we have about 800 units. So and we've owned up and down the coast. So instead of where we were very opportunistic, where I would have no problem going to buy a deal in Mobile, Alabama or Jackson, Mississippi. Now, the biggest change to our business plan is we're trying to focus on larger markets. So instead of buying in a market where there's 100,000 people or 250,000 people, we try and stick to a million people or more. That's been the major shift to the business plan. Other than that, you know, we're still looking for those opportunistic deals. And then uh, we're looking for deals that people don't want because if someone doesn't want something or it's broken or something's not working or the owner may or may say, you know, I'm done with this thing. That's where we see the opportunity. We're not typically buying deals from professional groups that have milked out every last bit. So we we are looking for things differently. And then the biggest biggest change to business plan in 2014, we weren't looking for this at all. In 2017, we started and we really just hit our stride uh, on mobile home parks. That's been a huge component of the last 24 months. We have two deals in contract right now. We just closed on another one. So it's a big push for us because we're taking that professional multifamily attitude and operations, and we're bringing it down to where mom and pop used to run the show. So that's really where our focus is split between multifamily and mobile home parks right now.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. On the multifamily side, is there a typical unit count that you guys tend to uh, gravitate towards or is it any any opportunity that makes sense?
0: Yeah, so we are... That was the you know a minor change there. You know it was two hundred units plus, right? That's the bread and butter. But I feel like there's more opportunity now, like seventy to two hundred units. So yes, we will buy three four hundred unit complexes. You know we have a couple offers out right now. But at the end of the day, our sweet spot is probably five to twenty million dollars. So we're trying to stay in that lane. If we found a smaller deal, we would do it for sure, as long as it was in a market that we had scale. But at the end of the day, you know, I think that, you know, the inefficient stuff and the more mom and pop owned stuff is where, you know, that's the lane we want to stay in and not really deviate out under, you know, normal circumstances.
1: It's that time of the show for a segment called Best Deal, Worst Deal, where we talk about real estate transactions that you've done in the past so that others can learn from your knowledge and expertise. So, John, with that said, what's the best real estate deal that you've done?
0: Best deal ever was a fractured condo in Charleston, South Carolina. 80 units. We bought 72 when we closed. Over the first 18 months, we acquired the other eight, and it was a phenomenal deal. By far, You know, we renovated it. It went almost without a hitch. We probably could have cash flowed better, but we just went pedal to the metal on renovations and repositioning and ended up being, you know, we, we turned $900,000 into $5.5 million. So it was, uh, it was a phenomenal deal.
1: Wow. That's awesome. So did you leave them as condos and just sell them as a package of 80 or, or did you convert them to a... yes?
0: Yeah, so we sold it. It was the perfect buyer. So we had a, a property. He, he actually owned the property behind us. He needed our property to get an easement to build on the property behind us. So we ended up selling it to him as a multifamily deal, an 80 unit. We left the HOA open. So if he ever wanted to sell them as condos or whatever, he could. But... uh It was a perfect storm realistically at the end of the day, but we sold it as an 80 unit multifamily property.
1: Wow. That's very interesting because I think most people may have missed that opportunity because if you're in the multifamily lane and you're just looking for apartment buildings, most people would say, no, I don't do condos where you saw that opportunity, bought 72, then bought the other eight. What advice would you have for someone who's doing multifamily, who's an operator? What advice would you give a person to not miss an opportunity
0: like that? If your tunnel vision's on like this, you're gonna miss things. So you got to stay in your lane. But the best advice you can give is if it if there's something there and you have that feeling like, oh wow, there's there's an opportunity here, there's nothing wrong with digging up, you know, digging a little bit deeper. So this situation checked off every box. It was a guy in a foreclosure. He had to sell the property in like 20 days. So he was under extreme time pressure. It was 80 units in a market that we've been very successful in and the only major difference was there was eight units that were part of that that were sold prior to the crash in 2009 so it was 72 unit complex 72 units is a good size it was a five, you know it was a 5 million dollar purchase so it checked off every box except for that one component but that one component added with the pressure of him needing to sell he sold us the deal at the time it was a crazy price so understanding that it might not be down the fairway we knew everything about this and the price matched, you know, if you turned that into an 80 unit building, it would have sold for 80, 90 a door. We bought it for 60. So there was so much room to learn as you went along. So I say, you know, stay specific to what you want. But if you're looking for 200 unit, you know, 150 to 200 unit deals and a 240 unit comes in, you know, that's there. That's close enough, right? If there's a standard deviation there that you could work with do it. You, you got to at least explore it to see if it's well, it's overwhelming or you know what, it's not that difficult. So the best advice I give is, you know, stay focused, but at the same time, understand that your best deal could be 40 units bigger or smaller than what you want. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, going it you know, track it down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What would you say is the worst real estate deal that you've done?
0: So I would say the worst deal that we did ended up turning out to be probably the biggest learning experience. It was one of the vacant properties we bought. It was in Cincinnati the deal's doing phenomenally but it took us 3 years to get it to where it is and during that period of time there was too many cooks in the kitchen right there was you know 3 or 4 people on the gp side i never wanted to do the deal when we started but they needed real experience so i helped out i helped out basically overseeing stuff but i lost control of the bus and you know i had one investor paying the contractor directly so at the end of the day you know the contractor stole probably a million dollars when everything's said and done. So it ended up being just heartburn for two, three years. Then once I said, okay, no more of this, you're fired, you're out, you keep your mouth shut. I'm going to run the show. I'm gonna bring in the right people. We're gonna pay a little bit more than we want, but we're bringing in the right groups. And we ended up bringing in the right people, getting it fixed. Inevitably, we got to the finish line. We got a crazy valuation where even though we got robbed and stolen, it ended up turning out to be fine. I mean, we still own it today. It does cash flow really well. And uh, it's a 10 year deal. We're never going to sell it. And, uh, you know, we'll make up for the lost money. But luckily, there was not many investors in the deal. It was not a disaster like that. It was a handful of people, everyone understood. And everyone looked in the mirror and said the same thing. You know, we bit off more than we can chew. You know, we should have listened. I said, that's sort of what I tried to tell you from the beginning. But everybody thinks they're smarter than they are. But I would say that's probably the worst one. Other than that, you know, I think your worst deal, it could be your best learning experience and that will help you so much more going forward. And you know, on our podcast, on a lot of podcasts, I tell people all the time, the best deal you could do could be the one that you lose all your money. You know, it doesn't work because you're going to learn more from that and the deal you buy that goes 100% according to plan. So although it was tough and we we did run into some issues, we're still here living, breathing and uh, rocking and rolling.
1: Yeah, yeah. What's the number one learning experience from that deal?
0: You got to have better contracts in place. You got to have better contract. Like when I say contracts like with a contractor, you know, Gmax contracts. You got to have dates, deadlines with penalties. So if they miss a date simultaneous, you need to be out there. You know, we were torn that deal every single month, probably should have been there every single week because you know, we were getting pictures of the same unit in different angles. And it looked like he was doing multiple units. So by far on major construction projects, you need, you got to get a real attorney involved with a real contract in place with real deadlines. Don't give people a lot of money at once. You know, if it's a million dollar job, don't give them a half a million dollars to start, right? Give them like 20 grand. And if you can buy the materials directly, get a storage container, throw them in there. You know, we've got a Conex, we dropped it on the site and we put everything in there. So he had, you know, he didn't, he couldn't say he was buying materials and not, it was, we bought the materials we stored them. And then if he wanted access, he got access. But at the end of the day, the labor, you know, he installed every 27 sliding doors upside down and backwards. Because he was hiring, we found out after the fact, he was hiring people that were living at the building. So it was like 10% occupied when we bought it. He was hiring people living at the building to do the work. They—they—they—they they, they, they didn't know anything. So, you know, he wasn't paying labor. And then he was taking all the money. He ended up buying, we saw, you know, we sued him and you know, we got credit card statements. He ended up buying his wife an engagement ring. Like we sent him like 50 grand. The next transaction on his next, uh, you know, 50,000 in his bank account, the next transaction was like a $20,000 ring. And we're like, Jeez. what the fuck's going on here? So at the end of the day, we won the lawsuit. We did collect some money and the guy has to pay us over time. But the biggest learning experience is make sure you have the right people. Don't do a deal like that. If you don't have an advisor, a mentor, someone in your corner that has done that before, or the right systems, documents in place to make sure, you know, it's going in the right direction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right on. That's great advice. And thank you for sharing that. So John, we're almost out of time here, but where can others go to connect with you and and maybe even invest with you?
0: Yeah. So uh, the best place is our website. It's Toro, T-O-R-O-R-E-P.com. Right now the website may be down. We're revamping it and fixing it, but I believe this page is still open. It says investor questionnaire. You can click that, you can fill it out. We'll get an email. Typically, there'll be a link in there to set up a call, or you could just reach out. My email address is John, J-O-H-N at Toro You could shoot me an email there, go to the website. I'm not really the best at social media, but you can find me on all the platforms, but I suck at it. So I would recommend <laughs> I would recommend email or website it would be the best way to get in contact with us. I'm available for you know the most the most rookie investor to the most experienced. Anyone wants to pick my brain? Uh, typically, give me 24 to 48 hours, I can get you scheduled. I'm a big believer that real estate is a team sport. And you need someone to talk to or whatever it is. So I, I think that it's about giving back and helping everybody out. So don't, you know, anyone listening, you know, don't hesitate to reach out in any capacity. Uh, you know, we're really opportunistic with potential JVs, co-GPs, raising some money, putting some money into deals, you know, we're pretty flexible, and just looking for opportunities and looking to help.
1: Awesome. That's amazing. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it and have a great rest of your day.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on here and, uh, you know, let's uh, rock and roll.
1: Hey everybody. It's Mark Allen Kenny. If you're interested in apartment building investments, schedule a call with me so we can have a chance to chat. My company is focused on growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. So let's hop on a quick call and talk about your investment goals and see if we're a good fit. Find out more at StellarInvestmentGroup.com.